Well, Dr. Spanger, we have another uh, interview today, uh, Seeking God in the Whirlwind, and uh, today we're in, in, in sort of a Mark Draper sweet spot. We're going to look at <laughs> theology, history, and technology, and music, right? It, they all overlap there, and we could add like bicycles and chocolate and coffee. It'd be the ultimate. <laughs> you can get airplanes yeah, so. in there. I'd be happy. I don't know if that's Yeah, airplane. <laughs> well, that's technology. That's tech. Come uh, on, we yeah, can do it. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so today we, we're going to talk with Dr. Joe Kim, a uh, professor here at Lancaster Bible College. And again, we're, we're trying to negotiate this idea of uh, being citizens of the kingdom of God while living in the kingdom of man. And particularly for this, living in the kingdom of man during a pandemic, during a whirlwind. Uh, and one of the things we, we hear a lot in our uh, media today is everyone's looking for the new vaccine, a new solution to this, uh, a technological solution to solving this problem. And we've talked about this. Uh, this is a very Western way of doing things, right? You marshal your resources to um, destroy your, your opponent. Uh, I just had a conversation the other day with somebody and said, at the height of World War II, Henry Ford's plant was producing a, a plane an hour <laughs> and flying them from Detroit to, I mean, that's just unbelievable. Uh, someone said, well, can we do that with masks? You know, can we, <laughs> uh, they seem to be a little less complex than planes. Uh, but that, that, that's, that's a classic example of just uh, when we went to war, uh, we marshaled our technology to do this. Um, and of course, we are using technology right now to bring this to you and, and to be part of this. So we, we're, we're glad for that. Uh, but we really wanted to talk to Dr. Kim and, and, and kind of allow him to share his expertise on that intersection of theology and technology and particularly how it, it uh, pertains to this situation and how we can sort of think well uh, about negotiating uh, what, we would all say common grace. There's technology that is a positive. It's great. I mean, I love Novocaine when I go to the dentist. Uh, you know, I'm glad for Zoom technology. Um, you know, I think that uh, all of us, our research is much easier to do than the people before us because of, of technology. Uh, so there's positive things, but there's also a lot of negative stuff that can happen with technology, particularly if we take it uh, unreflectively and just embrace it. Uh, so, Danny, anything to add to that? Well, I, I just wanted to say, uh, Dr. Kim and I came to LBC about the same time. Joe, I think it was just one year ahead of you, and then you moved in yeah. right across the hall from me. So we've been, we were hallway buddies for a number of years until we moved into our new suite. So this is, this is good for me to spend some time with you, since uh, this uh, reminds me of my my early days at LBC. So I'm glad for the opportunity. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and, and Dr. Kim, and I, maybe you can speak to it for a minute, Dr. Kim. You teach New Testament or teach theology. At LBC. So you've done this, right? You've, you've pulled together your understanding of theology and scripture and practical things like technology. How, how do you do that in the classroom? What, what are some of the ways you're able to tackle that subject? Um, I do a lot of things. Um, I've, I've actually had a course on uh, theology of media, which I, do, I use the, a very broad term for media. Uh, that that's, goes back to my studies of, of Marshall McLuhan, who used the word medium to to describe anything that extends our capacities. We tend to think of media in terms of communication technology, but um, he would say things like a light bulb is a medium because it extends our ability to see into times when we normally wouldn't be able to see or places where we wouldn't normally be able to see. Um, he talks about the automobile as an extension of 
our, our, our feet in a sense, because it allows us to travel, which is what our feet do, but faster and farther. And, and so, um, <clears throat> so yeah, my, um, I had a, a class where we talked about that and we, we studied, uh, Marshall McLuhan, we studied, uh, Neil Postman mm. and, and some of these folks who talked about these things. And then in my, um, Christianity and culture class, I have, uh, my students for the, for the last three or four weeks of the semester, uh, we spend talking about issues of technology and theology. And, uh, I have them read Neil Postman's Technopoly and, uh, and then we talk about number of those kinds of things. So, so yeah, I definitely integrate that into my, my classes and it, it falls in, in a number of other places. So um, you're, you're saying technology is a medium. Um, I, I assume what you mean by that is it's in between us and something else or that it's a, it's an environment that we live into. What do you mean when you say medium? Um, actually some, some of both, uh, it is something between us and, and, and other folks. Uh, it is also an environment. It creates an environment that we live in. And I think that that's, that's one of the most important things about understanding it. Um, and I really like McLuhan's use of the light bulb as his illustration here. He says, you could use a light bulb to communicate. You know, you could put, you could have a code for it. So you turn it on, it means one thing, you know, or turn on two light bulbs, you know, one if by land, two if by sea, something like that, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but that's not how we use the light bulb. We use the light bulb for a lot of other things. And he says that what the light bulb makes possible is the most important message of the light bulb. So we can do brain surgery, you know, because now we can be in this enclosed environment that would be dark otherwise, but now we can see, in fact, we can concentrate light, make it very bright. So the person can see very well. Uh, it makes possible nighttime baseball mm. unless you're in a, global pandemic <laughs> or you're the cubs no who fans, won't, right? or you're the cubs who won't put lights on the stadium until 1986 right 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 yeah. <laughs> um but what it doesn't matter what you're using it for it makes possible working around the clock so you can have three shifts and so you can have a factory that runs non-stop um so so these are things that it brings in to change the total environment of the society and that has more significance than what anybody would ever specifically do, any individual would do with it. Hmm. And is it, is it fair to say that technology changes what we think is possible? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it doesn't just add, that's the other thing. Um, both, well, McLuhan kind of is the fountainhead and then Neil Postman in particular picked this idea up and ran with it. But uh, he, what he called the field of media ecology and that is the idea of how do media change the total cultural environment that we find ourselves in. Mm. Um, because you don't just add technology to uh, a society and just have now something new to do. It really rearranges or reorganizes, at least the most significant uh, technology reorganizes everything. Dr. Kim, could you, could you, uh, last time when uh, Dr. Spanger and I sat down with Dr. Kitas, it became sort of a very historical dorky event. And <laughs> so you almost needed a reading list afterwards to figure out who all the players were. Can you just expand a little bit for people listening who might not know who McLuhan and Postman are? Just tell us who those are, who those people are. Yeah. Marshall McLuhan was uh, a Canadian literature professor. Uh, 1960s and 70s was kind of his heyday. Um, 
he published a book called The Gutenberg Galaxy in 1962, and then one called Understanding Media in 1964. And uh, these were really different approaches to the whole issue of communication and media and such. And uh, so he introduced this idea uh, that began to affect thinkers in all kinds of different places. In 1967, he ends up going to Fordham University for a year as a, a visiting scholar and has some uh, seminars there. Neil Postman, who was an education student at Columbia University at the time, was fascinated with McLuhan's work, got over to Fordham for every lecture he could. And uh, then he took some of McLuhan's ideas and eventually he, he writes a book uh, called Teaching as a Subversive Activity. That's uh, 1960s type of a book, you know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but he's trying to apply some of McLuhan's ideas about the way that people think differently in the, under the influence of electronic media like television and how that affects students, how they learn, how you have to teach in order to, to communicate with them. Um, he he kind of grew out of his, at least that kind of radicalism, a little bit. And in the early 1970s, he published a book called Teaching as a Conserving Activity, hmm. because he realized that going too far in that direction would lose some of the benefits or, or would lead to losing some of the benefits of literacy. Hmm. And so he said that he thought education should have this thermostatic kind of a role so that whatever direction the current society is pushing really hard, education tries to push back the other way to preserve the values of the past. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> but he eventually put together a graduate program at, the universe, at New York University um, in what he called media ecology. And so they had master's students and PhD students it was sort of a interdisciplinary study and uh, they ended up, uh, you know, he ended up seeding people who were educated in this program into a number of universities. And so there's a, a number of folks now across the United States who are interested. Most of them are in cultural studies or in um, communication programs, uh, but they're in a few other places too. So, Joe, Dr. Kim, your, your statement by Postman there that um, education should function, push against the culture, uh, some conserving features. Is there, is there something about technology that resists that tendency? Do, do we tend to want to go away from these things, which are ancient truths, and it pushes us to think differently about that? Yes, I think, I think that what, uh, where I would see that coming in is the way that Marshall McLuhan talked about how we respond when a new technology or new medium is introduced. Um, he called it the Narcissus effect. Hmm. That we, what, what he said is if, if a medium is an extension of ourselves, then if we get fascinated with something, and I'll take the smartphone as an example, because we all have smartphones and we all end up, you know, very preoccupied with our <laughs> smartphones. <laughs> um, fascinated with them. Now, now remember, he's writing in this in the 1960s. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think he's, he, this is one of the reasons I was interested in studying him 12, 13, 
more, I guess, more than that now, years ago. <laughs> Don't want to think about it, Joe. Just yeah, leave right. a number. <laughs> MP, yeah, leave that blank. But, uh, but the reason I was interested in studying him was because he seemed to have grasped a lot of things that really didn't come to, to real uh, broad uh, influence in our society until, you know, the early 2000s. Hmm. Right. But, so, uh, so but, we're, we're gone. Oh, I was just, he, his, uh, his idea then is that these things are really extensions of ourselves. And so we get fascinated with them thinking that there's something other than just reflections of ourselves. Hmm. Hmm. So they do, they do entice us because we're preoccupied with self, right? Hmm. <laughs> and we're preoccupied with the power, at least the perceived power that these things will give us over nature over our circumstances. And I think that that's what entices us to continue to be interested in technology is we just make that, hmm. you know, disconnect and we think, okay, this is, this is giving me more power. Um, one way he put it is it actually um, helps us to eliminate the, the, the barriers of physicality. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if he was defining social media in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, you said something very interesting too, that, that technology is an environment. And, and I can't help but, but think about how video games, they become an environment. You move into a different world. And, and I think the, most, the classic example of this is Second Life, yeah. you know, where you can recreate who you are. Yeah. Uh, and, and at one point, both of these environments, particularly in the early 2000s, became so uh, important uh, for advertising that people started purchasing real estate in these places to advertise. I mean, President right. Obama advertised in a video game. Right. Uh, for, you know, it was Obama 2008, as you're racing in Indy or something. I forget the game, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting. how. So what I want to ask about then is, it, what it sounds as if what you're saying is technology is not neutral. Technology always comes with, it's not so much uh, we make it what it's going to become, but it always comes with something else, with presuppositions. It definitely does. It, it, it's got a bias. That doesn't make it bad or good. It just, it's, it's just got a certain direction. Um, and in our, our conversation right before this, you were talking about C.S. Lewis and his use of the example of a two by four. You can use a two by four to build a house. You can also use it to bludgeon someone to death. And, and while that's true, a two by four is not made to bludgeon someone to death, right? It's, it's probably not the first tool that you would use um, <laughs> if you were thinking, how can I come up with something that's going to allow me to kill somebody, right? <laughs> I would think more of a sawed off shotgun or something like <laughs> right. that. Depends on where you live, Mark Draper. Uh, uh, that's true. That's true. In <laughs> Philadelphia, that was our weapon of choice. Yeah. But, but the thing is that... Uh, um, let me take a, a hammer, for example. I, I, that's, that's one I like. Um, the, uh, there's a guy named uh, uh, Kaplan, I can't remember his first name, who, uh, who came up with what he called the law of the hammer. And that is if you give a hammer to a small child, suddenly everything he sees needs pounding, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's kind of the way that the bias of these technologies that we use work they make possible a certain thing or they extend us in a certain area. So suddenly we try to do everything with that. Hmm. I, and I guess Joe, where that, where that appeals to me as a person trying to live obediently to Christ is that I, 
I don't realize how often then technology sort of superintends my relationship with him or, mm. or intervenes between that and my own, my own development as a Christian. And I, I almost feel in my heart that I, I'm able to sort of water down the actual statements and truths of the gospel to little pieces that my technology can handle. Um, if God loves me, this would happen. And I've got technology that can cover that. Uh, my illnesses, my sicknesses, we're in COVID. So we want technology to save us from these things, which is good in one sense. But mm -hmm. to your point, um, it changes the way we think about them, right? Because now we look to them as, as the saviors maybe for our problems. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think there's, there's more to it than, than just that. There's a, there's a history of that in our, our intellectual uh, development in the modern era. You know, I think my, my understanding, my take on the development of, of modern thinking in, in the Western world comes from, starts with Bacon, Francis Bacon. And uh, he very explicitly said, we need to move out of this role where we think the value of, of life is in contemplation, contemplation of God in particular. And he would say, we want to honor God. I mean, he, he's not, he's not anti-Christian or anything like that, or atheistic, but he's, but he's, he's seeing that, that what humanity needs to do is to, he calls it master the other book of God, understand nature so that we can have power over nature. And then we can take into our hands the task of overcoming the effects of the fall in our lives. Mm. I mean, that's, that's basically his, his, his project. Well, that, now that raises a question, Mark, I'm going to, I'm going to cut you off, Mark, but that goes, no, no, that's, that before. that's, yeah, we were talking about the idea of general revelation. Cause I think this is where, as we're, as we're saying, negotiating and navigating, we want to navigate between where technology becomes an obstacle to our faith or dilutes it or becomes a problem or technology is part of God's general providence to us. But the way, the way you're saying that's interesting that it is, does technology run afoul then of general revelation because it's, it becomes our way of manipulating, not a way of learning more about who our God is. Can it, can yes. it actually run afoul? <clears throat> exactly. The aims, the, the idea that nature is a book of God, I don't have any problem with, but the aim of reading that book is not to glorify God in Francis Bacon's thinking and in basically the modern world's way of approaching things. Hmm. In fact, we were, very enamored of shortly after that the ver the power that this this approach gave us it gave us the ability to figure out why the planets move the way they do it gave us the ability to develop steam engines and you know power looms and and all kinds of things that that we saw as very tangible goods that improved human life and you can argue certainly that they did in in many ways and even, um, even to the point, too, Dan, with the research we've done, for a lot of American evangelicals, those developments were not just us controlling. It was God leading to the millennium, right? Yeah. It was, it was it God was, legislating progress for the sake yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so there's a follow-up question there, too. Uh, we, we talked a little bit offline about evangelical Christians and their use of technology. And I always tell my students, um, you know, one of the first uh, – rock stars of American evangelicalism, George Whitfield, uh, who was his publicist? His publicist was Benjamin Franklin, who mastered the printing press uh, and they had a lifelong relationship. And then it, this just moves on and on and on into printing press and uh, Sister Amy McPherson on the radio and television and now blogs and stuff. So can you speak a little bit into how we as American Christians have engaged technology, how we've used technology, whether positively or negatively? 
yeah, American Protestants have been very quick to adopt new technologies. And uh, one of the things that, there, there's some good things about that, but there's some problems about that. One of, the, one of the good things, obviously, is their aim has often been, typically been, to further the, uh, the gospel, you know, further the, the appeal of the gospel, the ability to proclaim the gospel. Uh, but one of the problems is that they have had this kind of very, I would say, naive and optimistic understanding of technology hmm. that kind of fits into that idea of distancing the technology from, from ourselves that McLuhan was talking about. And uh, when we do that, then we don't recognize that what, if, if technology, we see it as, a, as an extension of ourself, then what we ex see extended in it is our fallenness. Hmm. Um, we're fallen people and the things that we make and the things that we do with what we make are going to reflect that fallenness. Hmm. Um, and not only that, but the, the technology then tends to shape us, you know, according to that law of the hammer, you know, we, we say, okay, what we have to do with in, in order to use this um, new technology, we don't realize it's going to shape the, the way that we do things. So for instance, um, I, did a, I did a study of some, uh, some of this. Um, I, I didn't, well, you can look at this starting in the early 1900s with the development of film. Hmm. One of the first big Christian or the first Christian movie that was made was made in 1912. It was called From the Manger to the Cross. Hmm. And the way that Christians were talking about it were saying, this is going to make it possible to proclaim the gospel to every nation in a way that nobody ever could before. Okay. So God's plan, you know, in the past for doing this through, you know, one person witnessing to another wasn't good enough to really get the job done, right? We needed this new technological development to make that possible. Um, and the way that they tend to talk about that then is this is what God has given us to do that. Hmm. You see that with radio. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You see that with television, uh -huh. when all of those things come along, and you see that with the internet. Uh -huh. And I looked at a couple of, this is a number of years ago now, this is 2010, 11, but um, I looked at a number of, of initiatives that were being used then as ways to try to <clears throat> um, use the internet for, for gospel witness in various ways. One of them is global media outreach, and that's still out there. They're still doing this. It's what you would call a very web 1.0 type of a thing. They put up a bunch of websites with gospel presentations. They start, try to see the, the search terms into the search engine so that when people search for, you know, who is God or things like that, it'll take them to one of their websites. And then they have this kind of um, real simple canned gospel presentation that's supposed to go to everybody in, in the world and supposed to be, you know, it's in different languages. Um, but then people will, uh, you know, log on to these sites, they'll see the thing, they'll click a button that says, yes, I, I accept Jesus Christ. And then the, the media ministry, global media outreach will try to put them in contact with somebody who will follow up with them on email and things like that. Um, so now, Dr. Kim, I mean, I mean, let's, let's, this is, this, this show is primarily about negotiating and navigating. So help us negotiate. I mean, I know that the, the one we saw at the end of the school year was that there's a, a new Bible out on a, on a little, there's, I saw it during the missions conference at LBC and it's this, it's this little device that comes out and the Bible's on there. It's very low powered, easy to charge. Right. 
Um, this sounds like good stuff to me. It sounds like stuff that's helpful. I'd rather someone see a poorly done silent movie on Jesus rather than hear nothing. Um, help, us, help us navigate that. How, how do we see the good in that and the danger at the same time? Yeah, well, and here's the danger with something like that. It, uh, if, you, if you look at the guy who, who was the founder of Global Media Outreach, he comes from a background, he's a Christian, but he comes from a background in information technology. And so he sees the job. In fact, he wrote a book, which make, made it really easy to analyze this. He wrote a book where he says, <laughs> it's always a problem. Right. Don't write a book about it. Right. <laughs> but, but what he said is God has given this platform. And he also says that the church has always been the way he puts it. The church has always been in the information business. Hmm. And so now what he's doing is he's using information technology and business as his understanding or the framework for understanding ev evangelism. So what does information technology require? That you convert everything into information of some type. Sorry about that. Um, I, right. I don't know who's calling me. <laughs> uh, Someone trying to use technology to distract you. Yes, that's right. it's a plant. It's a plant. Right. Um, but... But someone, um, so, so what, what, what they're, they're saying is that we have to reduce the gospel to information. And if I've done that, and if somebody has received that information, they've been evangelized. Yeah. Mm. That really, I think, shifts a, a significant way from what the gospel seems to be in the context of, you know, the New Testament, mm -hmm. where it is a witness mm -hmm. and not just delivering information. And even though, yes, Paul gave sermons where he gave information, his whole point was not just to say, okay, here's the information, now you've got it. His, his point was to develop relationships so that he could continue in that relational context to help them to become disciples. Hmm. The other thing is business as a model says, okay, then the more people, the more efficiently I can distribute that information around the world, then the better I am at achieving the goal. So, you know, is, is the, the, the deal to present, and this is what they say on their website, present the gospel multiple times to every man, woman, and child in the world in terms of getting them that information? Yeah. Or is evangelism really more about helping the people of God to make, develop, build relationships with their, their neighbors and through those relationships, the gospel gets communicated, but those people then get integrated into a community. Um, you know, it, it's a very Western kind of way of thinking about evangelism to so, say, I'm going to do this technological project and there it goes. And, and then all you have to do now, me as an average church member, is just send money to support right. this outreach, right? And then I have contributed to the fulfilling of the Great Commission through this, and this is something else that Walter Wilson, the, the founder of Global Media, Tech, uh, um, Global Media Outreach said, he said, God has given us this information platform as a way to, to distribute the gospel. Yeah. Mm. So and, and it, it, it sounds like too, you're, you're allowing technology, uh, you're, 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 you're gonna actually water down the gospel at that point. The gospel now becomes information yeah. Uh, opposed yeah. to a living and active thing. So now let me, let me ask you this question. So 
help us think through a healthy, healthy way of negotiating this because some people have attempted to this and there's different sects uh, that, that, that we, that historians have studied where, you know, you just kind of say, okay, we're not going to use any technology past 1750, you know, and we're just going to stay there. And, you know, unless, you know, someone tells us there's a, there's a dispensation uh, for that. Oh, well, here we are in Lancaster County. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Or the other, the other extreme is you just sort of unreflectively, you know, this all must be God's grace. You know, God is, is spreading his kingdom. Help us think biblically, you know, we, we, we're trying to inculcate a Christian worldview with our students. Uh, help us think about technology with a Christian worldview. How do we healthily have, how do we have a healthy relationship with uh, these mediums? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think that's one of the big challenges of our day, actually, um, for the church in America, anyway. Uh, how do we develop the kind of spiritual disciplines that really address the, the, the temptations that we face in our society. And I think the, one of the big temptations is to look to technology the way our society does as our savior. To, I think there's a real tech, um, uh, theology of technology. Um, one of the things I show in my Christianity and culture class to my students there is a commercial that was made, I think in 2014 or so. Um, Steve Gleason, who was a um, New Orleans Saints football player, uh, got uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and uh, he was confined to a wheelchair and he had to use an electronic communication device to speak. And so they have him using his voice generator to, to narrate this commercial. And it's put together by Microsoft. And what they what they talk about doing is all the things. The the question that begins the thing is, what is technology and what can it do? And so what they show you is a little boy who's a double above knee amputee, walking around on his prosthetics, and and that's a great thing. It's not a bad thing at all. I'm not saying that these are bad things. I'm just saying realize that what they're saying here is technology allows the lame to walk, can make the lame to walk, right? They have a guy who lost his sight talking about how a computer helps him to paint again. So here, allowing the blind to see. They've got a woman who has some kind of a, um, you know, one of those cochlear implants who's learning to use it to hear. And it shows you, you know, how, how technology makes the, the deaf to hear. Um, talks about how it unites us and it shows people, you know, in different parts of the world communicating through, um, like we are, you know, on Zoom or something like that. It wasn't Zoom then, but <laughs> um, so, so, you know, it unites us. And another thing it says is it gives us hope. Now, if you think about all of those things, those are very messianic kinds of statements, right? These are things that we have always, until, you know, fairly recently in history, associated with the coming of the Messiah, right? And, and technology is, is what delivers that. So our temptation is to look to technology to be our savior, to give us life, to heal our, our, our diseases, and, and to give us hope. Um, that, that's really helpful, Joe. And I, I, yeah. I think the, the idea of giving hope, I mean, in one sense, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm pulling things together here, Technology is actually recrafting our hopes then, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I think it's, it's every human being's hope and desire to be healthy, um, you know, to do things they cannot do, um, certainly. 
But that hope is always held in tension against something much larger than that, which is who are we eternally? Where is this going? But the more we live into these things, I think it goes back to what Esther was talking about, which, you know, the, the people in the, in the global South, I wish I could use her accent here. I, I just can't. It would sound so much better if I could. But the point the people in the global South, they have a hope that's well-crafted. I'm summarizing, but, but th because they understand this life isn't it. And not, not that we would recommend the lives they have to live, but there's something about tech, isn't it, that has retrained our hopes to, oh, yeah. to seek it here in this life rather than to understand this is not where, where we get our ultimate hope. Absolutely. I think that is, and that's why I say this is one of the, the most important spiritual disciplines we need to develop. And, and I see this, and in, in one of the places I address this is in my Theology of Suffering class. We talk a lot about death in that class. And we, we, we talk a lot about a number of things, but death is one of the things we talk about. But my students consistently say, I've never, ever had conversations like this about death before. Mm -hmm. And, and I, my question is, why not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who in the world is better equipped to face death than a Christian? Amen. But our churches are not teaching about that. And so what we end up doing is we buy into what our society wants to do and say, let's put off death as much as possible. Death is the worst thing that can possibly happen. I tell my students, no, death is not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. Mm -hmm. Christians mm -hmm. have never felt that, mm -hmm. until recently anyway. Um, you know, but but right. think about the early church. You know, I, I'd rather suffer in prison or even be an eat, eaten alive by a lion than to deny my savior because those things are not ultimate. Hmm. Um, you know, those don't affect my alternate ultimate hope and my ultimate destiny. But one of the things, one of the books I um, have, have read in preparation for my theology of suffering class talks about our thinking about dying. And, and the, the author makes an interesting comment. He says a lot of Christians when they're faced with a serious or terminal disease convert to the school of the Mayo Clinic or, you know, whatever in, in, in order to, uh, to find their hope in, in dealing with the disease. And we also then buy into the war metaphor. The disease becomes the enemy. Yeah. Rather I lost the battle to this disease. Right. That language. I don't know why Christians would ever use that. No. Um, is, is God not sovereign over this disease? Right. Right. Does he not have purposes for me? in suffering. Um, in reflections, I have, I have the students, I'm teaching theology of suffering class right now, and I have them writing reflections over their thinking of the whole, whole year. But one of the students said he, he never, ever thought before this class that God could have a purpose for suffering. Hmm. So it's what we keep hearing, Dan, in, in a number of these conversations with people, and, and we heard it very clearly with Esther, and I think we'll hear it in, in, in some of our next ones, that uh, technology or infer that the technology in the West can almost cause us to uh, put, uh, not even have to think about the not yet. We can sort of enjoy the already mm -hmm. and, and where we are right now and where I think what Esther was saying to us is that people in the majority world who don't have some of this stuff, the not yet is, is all they have. It's, yeah. it's the next life that they are really looking forward to, regardless of what Marx would tell us. <laughs> and, and, and so they, they really look where we almost, from what you're saying there, Dr. Kim, is that we have Christians and, and you know, we're, we're teaching at LBC. We're not teaching at, at, at Berkeley. Uh, we have students who were raised in the church or whatever who, 
who've not really been thought to think about the already not yet. It's almost how do we really enjoy and, and put off it. I, I was talking to a friend last night, and which is just classically fits this, is that uh, uh, Amazon delivery people, one of the highest things they've been delivering during the quarantine, exercise equipment. <laughs> right. And I mean, that's got all sorts of, uh, infra, you know, implications there, but like, you know, I'll get my immune system up so I don't catch the virus or, mm -hmm. or whatever. But Dan, you said that about your friend who's a doctor, right? You, you can only put off death for so long. Um, so the other question I wanted to ask Dr. Kim, we, we've got a couple, about 10 minutes or so, uh, before we take some questions, I, I want to, I want to ask you to help us think healthy and wisely about how we embrace technology in the nature in, in the age of a pandemic um you know do we, we pray for a vaccine we pray for a, a medical treatment how do we have a healthy reaction and response to technology in those ways and how do you see our culture the non-christian culture let's say treating technology in this area well the non-christian culture i think is definitely looking at technology as the savior <clears throat> Um, it's the testing, and I'm not against any of these things. I think it's important to, to think about how to do these, uh, to develop a vaccine, to get the testing that we need, and all those kinds of things. The, the thing is that as Christians, do we ultimately convert to, you know, to, to, to science uh, or, you know, to scientism uh, as, as our savior when we're faced with something like a global pandemic? Or can we, can we even think about praying, God, would you bring an end to this plague? Um, you know, when, when you don't have any other recourse, you know, as you were saying, either in the third world or if you, if you go back to the, uh, the, you know, earlier in history, you know, for instance, I think even of of the, the folks in, in Europe during, uh, during the time of the plague, do, do you have anything other than to turn to God? I mean, people did try to do things, you know, they came up with all kinds of what we would say, all oh, superstitious things. How much, how much of that was just as, as, as much as they knew at that point, their, their view was this, we're trying to manipulate this and gain control of it. Um, we have more sophisticated ways of doing that. Sometimes they may be more effective. Sometimes they may not. Mm -hmm. Well, but, I think, I think one of the things you've said, Dr. Kim, that helps me is I the, the idea of salvation, you know, we want, we want salvation from an issue and, and we're all expected to do that, right? You're supposed to take a medicine if it's available to you. If Mayo Clinic offered something, you would try it. And yet to what degree you'd have to make a decision. It seems to me there's a bit of a distinction between wanting local salvation and looking for a Messiah, right? That, 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 yeah, we, we can get improvement from this, Mm -hmm. But my ultimate meaning isn't found in whether or not this works. And I, I, I've gone back multiple times, Mark, and I know you've heard me say it here just because I keep repeating the quote from Mark Farnham's article on suffering that he says, suffering had its work to do. God, God sent it to me to do its work on me. And I think that, that's been just hard for me to grapple with as a Westerner because, yeah, there, you may want to overcome this and that's good. But, but what's happening to you is also an opportunity to train your affections further on Christ rather than bend your affections to this new Messiah and then put all at his feet until you're healed. I mean, is that, is that a way of, of navigating this somehow? I absolutely think you're right. Yes. Um, and that's where I think the church needs to do much better about this. We need to, we need to, to let people like Dr. Farman share it with our congregations 
or other people, anybody in our congregation, somebody who has been through an illness, maybe somebody who has been hospitalized with COVID-19 has recovered. Maybe we have the, you know, have them share. What did you learn mm. spiritually speaking through this? Mm. Mm. Um, how can we, how can we grow? How can we learn from your experience as well when we face whatever suffering we're going to face? Because all of us are going to suffer. That's right. My, uh, my wife likes to say, all of us are only temporarily able-bodied. Yeah. Mm. Every one of us is going to die unless the Lord returns while we're alive. Every one of us is going to decline. You know, every one of us is going to have some kind of a disease that will take our life or an accident that will take our life. We may, every one of us tomorrow, you know, could, could have something uh, that would debilitate us and we'd have to live with that for the rest of our life. Or we we just don't have any guarantees and, and none of our technology can prevent any of those ultimately from happening. You know, it's a number of times that the, the Mayo Clinic has, has turned up in this, uh, these interviews, Dan, if, if you've noticed. <laughs> and because I think we, we, you're right. It is a place where you think, okay, well, if, if anyone can fix it, it's Mayo. Uh, but what's fascinating about Mayo is when you go back to its origins, this is again, Dan, why they need historians to remind right. people. Uh, Mayo was actually founded by, yes, Dr. Mayo, who was an agnostic, but also a convent of nuns. Uh, and there was very much this marriage of science with faith, uh, to the point where even Mayo himself uh, realized that, you know, I might be an agnostic, but these nuns, these, these uh, sisters, they bring something to patients that I can't bring. Uh, so it seems like even in its origins, Mayo Clinic had a healthier balance between faith and technology uh, than than what we're seeing today. And and I, I'm not against using the technology at all. I mean, yeah. I've got a computer and I'm I'm talking to you over Zoom. <laughs> I've, I've bought a, a quality microphone so that when I record my lectures, it sounds better. You know, I mean, but um, but. It's, it's, it's maybe not the technology at all. Maybe it is the faith that's really the difference there. Because if you go back to the origins of the hospital, it's Christians who invented the hospital. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Is, no other religion has said, we are willing to put ourselves at the service of those who are ill yeah. and, and, and give aid to them, even if they cannot repay us, even if it means... You know, as you see this in the in the plague, you know, um, Teresa of, of Avila, she's, she's uh, no, Catherine of Siena, that's who it is. Catherine yeah. of Siena, you know, she was known for during the time of the plague came to Siena, caring for all of the, the people there. She ended up not getting the plague, but she could very well have, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but she didn't care about that. She cared about more important things. And she yeah. entrusted herself to the Lord and his purposes for her and knew that no matter what happened to her in this life, it was well with her. Hmm. So this is, this is something, Joe, and I, I want to, I want to throw this at you too. I think I've asked this a few times, but for this is, this is important to, to recalibrate, right? Our own, our own imagination, our own hopes. I'm reading Eric Little's biography right now, sort of grappling with his uh, the chariots of fire guy that, that uh, ran the Olympics in 1924 went off and died in a, in a prison concentration camp in China as a minister there. And he says at one point that, that, that God worked on him to give him an understanding that he belonged to his kingdom first and not this one. And mm. you see it, you see it like capture his imagination. And I think that's why we're enamored with guys like C.S. Lewis and others. How, how do we, 
Can you give us a way to really build up our imagination, our hope, our identity in Christ so that we've got something to work against the, the claims of these false gospels? Yes. Um, I think read the scriptures well. Um, not just the parts that, you know, you find in your promise book. But um, in fact, I've got... There was a, I don't know if it's, if it's up anymore. I haven't, I haven't gone there for a long time, but there used to be a website called Lark News, which was a Christian satire site. And the guy, Joel Kilpatrick, who was the guy who ran the site, put together his, what he called his book of God, little, God's little zingers. Um, <laughs> and, and they're all those verses that you never would put in a promise book. You know, things like God saying, why should I forgive you? Um, you know, he's speaking to the Israelites, but, but, you know, all, all these verses lifted out of context, but with a very different kind of uh, tone than, than what we typically find in our promise books. Right. Um, so, but, but I'm saying let's, let's not buy into this prosperity light that has taken over um, evangelicalism today in America in particular, but all over the world, we're exporting it, but we need to, study and encourage one another uh, to, to, to read those portions of scripture. We need to be people who listen to, care for, minister to, uh, and, and allow to speak in our congregations, people who are suffering, people who don't have the victory stories. Uh, we need to incorporate songs of lament into what we listen to, into what we sing, uh, in our churches, um, <clears throat> I often I often think about wh- what about the person who just got that diagnosis of cancer? The Sunday after they get that, they go into church and their worship leader stands up and is real chirpy and says, hey, everybody should be happy today because, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Yes, it's yeah. true. It is the day that the Lord has made. But 40% of the Psalms are lament. Mm-hmm. It's Okay for God's people in worship to come to the Lord and say, Lord, this sucks. Yeah. And, yeah. and we need to cultivate a tolerance for that as a part of our spirituality rather than suppress that and say, if I say that, then I'm not spiritual. Well, I guess King David wasn't very spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's helpful. We don't, we don't have the habits and we, we don't have the calluses, I say the spiritual calluses at those places. Cause I, you know that, you know, and I, maybe that works against what we're saying here. Lament doesn't actually solve the problem. You're not going to lament. And if you lament enough, then you'll get over the cancer. Lament is an accepting of that in some way, mm-hmm. accepting what God is doing in your life and disliking it at the same time, right? That's right. It, it seems like, it seems like that's, a, that's a habit that we have, are particularly weak at. If you, if you found the one place on our hands where we're going to get the blister, it seems to me that's, that's where it is. So. Mm. Is just is just doing this. I mean, is that is that something we need to do? Like you're saying, just just repeat the option when you have it, so that you can build that up and have that strength. Yes, and and that's that is that is extremely countercultural for us in America. Mm-hmm. It's easier, I think, in in other cases. I I, I co-teach theology of suffering with Dr. Dents, and uh, she grew up in Hong Kong. She grew up poor in Hong Kong and in, in projects. Um, She's, she, whenever we talk about the problem of, of evil, because that's one of the things, one of the topics we talk about, uh, she always makes the comment, I don't understand why Americans are so preoccupied with this problem. <laughs> it was never a problem for us. We never questioned 
whether God loved us or didn't if we were suffering. Suffering was a part of life, and you just mm. accepted it. Okay, so one last thing I want to ask, and then I want to open up for questions too. Uh, we talked a little bit about this offline. We've talked this with a number of our, our guests so far. So many people are dealing with, in this particular area, with grief, with depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I even thought, even myself, I, I, I found this to be somewhat of a disheartening period. And I thought, well, I have Netflix, you know, I, I have Zoom. Uh, I, I have a PS4 so I can play, I can still play, watch baseball. Uh, I, I actually, yesterday I cycled in Italy virtually on zoom on Zwift. Uh, so, you know, it, but why am I still depressed? Why am I still, uh, feeling at a joint? Can, can you speak a little to that? Cause I think there's a lot of people that are wrestling with that. Yeah. And I think it's because ultimately those things are just things that we used to try to mask the experience that we're having. And, and a global pandemic is a terrible thing. Yeah. And it's, uh, I, a couple of weeks ago, I, I did a, um, a guest Zoom lecture in, uh, with one of our classes in, at our Philadelphia campus. And uh, the regular professor, Tony Bruno, was just kind of checking up with the students at the beginning of the class, asking how they were. Two of the students out of the seven or so in the class, I think there were seven people in the class, two of the students said that they had lost multiple family members to COVID-19 that week. One lady had lost four family members. Wow. Another guy had lost two. And there's nothing good about that. Yeah. Yeah. This world, this world was not made for us to suffer these diseases and die. God did not intend that. But while we live in this time where God is doing his work of redemption, those things still prevail. Those conditions still prevail in this world. But God prevails over them, and he's building that world to come. And that's where I think that focus on the not yet, the focus on what is to come, focus on the future. You know, Peter says, fix your hope fully on the grace to be revealed at, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, well, you know, when things get bad, kind of think about that. No, he says, fix your hope fully on that. Mm. And he's one who was, you know, he's, he's saying this to people who are going through suffering. He is one who has experienced suffering himself and would ultimately die as a martyr for, for the Lord it, you know, it, it seems to me that these are the, the spiritual resources that we need to be looking for. Netflix is not going to provide that. You know, your virtual cycling in Italy is not going to provide that. Those are, those are distractions. There's nothing bad about them. But if we look to them, then I think that we're going to ultimately be let down. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I think that's really, I, I hope this gets heard by, by people because I think the, the Western church has done a lot of good and evangelism and, and, and all theology has just done a lot of good things, but it has overlooked some key aspects of its own spiritual development. And I felt myself in this whole time that um, the word keeps coming behind just immature, just there's an immaturity in my own heart that I've not, I've held this kind of stuff off that now God is using this as a time to recalibrate me. And I'm very grateful for it. I mean, it's hard. It's not as hard as some other people have had it, obviously, but it's, it's hard. And I'm, I think what you're talking about of, of fixing our hope 
and making sure that we we actually do that practically, not not just you know theoretically, but we actually start doing that. I think is really helpful stuff. So, hmm. thank you, Joe. I find yeah. that very and, helpful. And I'll, I'll just add too that I, I think I am blessed to be in the position I'm in because I have the ability to spend my whole day teaching my students nothing but these things, you know, <laughs> and, and, and um, I, I, I do enjoy that. I do, I do take joy in, in them thinking about these things, learning these things. I also, um, you know, I, as long as we've been in, in uh, our social isolation, I've been doing a, a Sunday school lesson that I've been recording for our, our adult Sunday schools at church. Um, just unpacking, we're going through Genesis, but unpacking what the Lord is doing in Abraham's life. Um, those things, those things I think are, are the things that really take me out of the, hmm. oh, you know, here we are in this isolation. We're in, hmm. in this gloomy place because, you know, the economy's going to, to pieces and, 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 you know, we don't have any, anything yet that's going to put the, this, keep this virus in check or anything like that. Um, you know, those, those things help me to keep a focus on what is really the, the, the main focus of our life. What is, what is it that we're supposed to put our hope in? Yeah. And that is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we have a couple people uh, online. Uh, just to warn you, Dr. Kim, they're IT people and Bible professors. So I have no idea what could come out of those. So I, I just wanted to, uh, we did get one person who had to sign off and thanked us for this discussion. Uh, someone actually recommended a book we read. Uh, but I, I do want to just put this out for any questions. If there's anyone with us that wanted to ask a follow-up or something we didn't touch. So I'll leave it there for right now. Yeah, I have a question. I'm going to try to word this as clear as I can, but something I'm wrestling with uh, through this current crisis, as well as it relates to, I think, the topic today, is how we're doing as a Christian, Christian institution moving forward, like how we're going to address the challenges in this new world um, in, in light of, you know, being quarantined and all that. And we want to make use of the technologies, but a fear that I have, and I think this actually goes back with some of my conversations with Dr. Kim in the past is that we, we may be dependent too much on the technologies and miss what God wants us to really be about um, in our discipleship and our training of people in that relational aspect that was talked about earlier here today in that the gospel and the, and the discipleship making process is part of that relational being together. Like even though Paul did much of his ministry in a technology of writing, yeah. yet his desire was that he would be with them. Right. So I, I think, and that goes back to you, Kim, I can't take, I can't take credit for that, but that goes back to a conversation we had many years ago. Um, but I am concerned as we move forward, even reading articles coming out in, in Christian material, uh, so forth. I'm just concerned about how this is going to shape us moving forward because we got this survival. How are we going to survive? How are we going to meet the challenge that's there? But yet uh, my concern is in our desire to survive that we may miss or undercut what God really wants us to do in, in furthering it. I, I don't know if that's making sense, but that's kind of where I'm at. And I've really been wrestling with this. I wish I had a better articulated at this point, but 
it's something that's stirring in me. So I don't know if you have any thoughts to, to, to address that if there are any follow-up questions to clarify what I'm saying, but yeah, I'll let it go at that. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think that's a very good point, a very good concern. And it's, it's really a bigger picture than just our institution because it's about our whole society and our understanding of what education is for. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, that the pressure of the market is being driven by certain assumptions that our, our society has kind of fallen into about what education is for. And it just gets harder and harder for a place like a, a Bible college, which says there are more things than getting than, than figuring out how to earn a living that education is going to equip you for. It needs to equip you to make you a better human being, but particularly for a Bible college, it, it's going to equip you to better know the Lord and to better serve him in whatever calling he's called you to. That's going to constantly be a tension. I think that we're going to face more and more as we go forward. And, uh, and just speaking about how do we as an institution address that, um, I'll just tell you my own personal uh, answer to that. And that is um, I, I'm subversive in trying to, you know, <laughs> as much as I can put forth my view to undermine some of these ideas <laughs> with everybody I, I talk to. And, uh, and I also keep bringing them up. <laughs> you know, I'll keep raising them in different contexts keep reminding people about this. Um, uh, I feel sometimes like a little bit of a broken record in doing that. Sometimes I also wonder whether it's like Sisyphus, you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think, I think that's, you know, <clears throat> I guess I've taken on, on the, the sense of, okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I tell people a lot of times I'm, I'm neither a prophet nor a son of a prophet and I work for a nonprofit institution, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But I do think that in this, in this case, there's a prophetic role that, that we have to have, those of us who are concerned about those things, Tony. And, uh, and, and we need to keep bringing those up. And I think the other aspect of it is doing, and, and what I've seen you do especially well during this, this remote instruction period, is keep those connections with our students. Um, you know, I've, I've kept connection with some, but I've made my meetings, my face-to-face -face meetings optional with my students. And for the, for the most part, they don't, they don't come. And so I've lost a sense of a personal connection with a lot of them that I would have in the classroom, you know, being able to talk to them. Um, you've done it by doing the online lectures, and maybe that's, maybe that's a better way to go. I don't know. Well, let me, but, let me just say, Dr. Kim, a hearty amen uh, to you and also to Tony uh, Shetter. Uh, those of you who, who may not know him teaches in our Old Testament department or Bible and theology department, um, that, that the, the goal of, of education, and, and I actually think, I think what's happened, sorry, what I think what's happened in our own culture, evangelical otherwise, is that by education slipping into a skill-based institution, we've actually sapped from our people the ability to think humanly about these things, to develop strong relationships. Um, I was just reading uh, Robert Hint, uh, Hutchins' um, article from 1950s on the great conversation. And even though it wasn't Christian per se, saying we've lost the ability to speak with past generations to, to learn how, what we mean and what matters. And, and as education thins those pieces out, we're creating people that are skilled, but not well-rounded, not, not capable of managing these more difficult. And that's not just what we do in class. I, I would agree with you, 
learning the past, learning good literature, learning history, these kind of things in philosophy, but, but also developing the kind of relationships that are tough, tough relationships, you know, where you hold one another accountable. We've got a very flimsy modern culture that gets very upset when they get offended. They haven't thought deeply about these philosophical problems before, and then they're shocked to all get out that they don't know how to manage a difficulty like this because they've not been equipped to do so. So I, I'm, I'm right behind you, Dr. Kim. I'll, I'll be happy to, uh, to repeat your non-prophecies anytime. Let me tease this out a little bit because I think you, you, Dr. Setter, you're making a really good point that we need to be aware of that uh, this this pandemic is going to change our culture. There's just no, it's just, there's no way it can't happen. And in fact, I would argue the longer it goes on, the more change there'll be. If it's a short thing, people are like, oh, we're back to normal, we're good. If it's a long, protracted thing. Uh, and so it's not every time I, I, I get, uh, this is almost like a bad joke. I get a theology professor, historian, and an Old Testament professor. And, and <laughs> all walk into Zoom, a Zoom room. All walk into <laughs> a Zoom room. Right, right, right. And, and, and so, but what, what can, particularly Dr. Spanger, historically, how can we look to history? I mean, if we're not good prophets, let's look back. Um, how can historically we look at various traumatic events the church has gone through and how that helped to shape them positive? What can we learn from that? I know we did an entire podcast on that, but in this specific area, not just education, but just what is the church going to look like in a post-corona world? Uh, what does it look like to serve God in a post-corona world? Yeah, that's, that's boy, um, I'm afraid we're out of time, Mark. Thanks for ah. No, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. And I think from my own, you know, you've seen the church, this is not the first time the church has not only wrestled with a problem, but wrestled with making a bad decision during a problem, right? I mean, I mean, as the church faces, we, we studied the Second Great Awakening as we were facing the crises of the new republic and everything that was happening. The church looked at that and made certain decisions, some post-millennial decisions about how they were going to embrace industrialization, these things. And it was a lot of the thinkers and Christian theologians right at that time that went, maybe this isn't what we thought it would be and we could watch them wrestle through it. And I, I think probably studying the past, we get to see what bad decisions look like as well as good decisions. I think that's important. And I, I think this is the other thing that's caught me recently is that the faithful has, have always acted. So I, you know, I think that, I think if you look at the faithful in the 19th century in the 18th century, 15, 16, 15, 14, you'll find the faithful of God still drawing towards the same thing. And I, I think what is most important about studying the past is that you can see the faithful of God, although the language is different, although some of the theology might skew, the faithful of God have been pursuing the same thing in every age. And I think that's really heartening. I, I brought this up before, and if I'm repeating myself for the sake of this podcast, I apologize. But on an essay that Augustine wrote in the resurrection, he, he mourns for the disciples, he says, because they only got to see the body of Christ. They didn't get to see the body of Christ. They saw the live body, but they missed a thousand years, 2000 years of Christ's body faithful is an incredible statement about the, the endurance of our faith and our beliefs. And I think you're right. We've, we've got a habit of looking forward to these things, hoping to be confirmed there. We've got it behind us, uh, an incredible track record of faithfulness that every era of the church have looked back to. And I, I think to, to go with you, Joe, maybe the one thing we fail to do is really, really you know, sort of immerse ourselves in the past of the church to see what the faithful have always done. And so we've got you know, a, a, a crummy language to work with when it comes to suffering. So I don't know if that's where you're going with Mark. I don't know if you have any other thoughts. No, I think that's helpful. I think we, we, we need to flesh this out. Dr. Kim, any there, Dr. Setter, do you have anything to add to that? I would just say <clears throat> hearty amen to that. Looking back, I, I have learned so much from just understanding the history of our faith. Those people who have gone before 
um, <clears throat> the 14th century, when the plague was hitting Europe, there was some, we don't even know who it was, but a Dominican friar put together what he called the Ars Moriendi, the, the art of dying, to, to mm. map out what are the specific temptations that people who are dying face, what are the virtues they need to face that. And all through that, it's look to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ. You know, as, as we now, you know, are, are, are looking at, at this situation where our mortality is raised to a little higher level in our, um, you know, in our, our current situation, you know, I hope that we would say that's a great example for us to train our people to do the job as a church that we need to do. And that is teach people so that they can be good disciples, even as they walk to the door of death. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a wrap. Yeah. That's, that's a good a way to end it on there. That's a good way to end it. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Kim. Um, very well. I, I know personally, these podcasts have been uh, a blessing to me to be part of and just to be able to, frame some of the questions that are on my heart and I'm wrestling with. And so, and I think I speak for Dr. Spanger as well on that one. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. These have been oh. very challenging, um, had a great deal of impact on the way that I've been going through these things. I'm grateful for the brothers and sisters in Christ who can wrestle ahead of me and around me and I can, I can take advantage of that. So thank you, Joe, for, for bringing that with us uh, today. Yeah. Thanks. Been a privilege. I've enjoyed it. Good. <laughs> thanks everyone. I've really been appreciating these.